Welcome again, everyone, to our podcast. Uh, we have as our guest uh, this afternoon, Margaret Rintoul, uh, who will be speaking on issues of wills and estates. And in fact, this is part two of Powers of Attorney. Welcome back, Margaret. Hello. So uh, let me give you a scenario now that I'm sure you've uh, heard many times. Um, an individual calls you up. This is a sister who lives in Connecticut. She comes home to visit her mom. Her mom is being taken care of by her brother, who has a power of attorney. And she tells you that her mother is living in deplorable conditions and that her brother is clearly not taking care of her. And worst of all, she thinks her brother is stealing money from mom. What can you do and what do you say to this person? Yes, well, you'd wish that this sort of thing didn't happen. Regrettably, it does. And... Also, regrettably, there's no one answer that one can give as a lawyer to the sister to say, yes, we'll do this and this and this, and it will be all right. Before I get talking about this, I think I'd have to say, if there's any lines of communication that are still open between brother and sister, and maybe with mother as well, depending on what her state is, they really need to try to explore them before they start lawyering up with their respective counsel because this is a an area that can be extraordinarily difficult, extraordinarily painful and hurtful to people involved and extraordinarily expensive. So before we start down the route of, oh, well, you do this and this and this, people do need to realize that this is a da- this dangerous ground that they're entering into. Just to sort of say, where do you go with the whole question of you know, feeling that brother is not looking after mother properly? The first issue may well be whether mother is in fact mentally incapable because like it or not if mother is still mentally capable and could if she was really not liking things walk out the door tomorrow then there's a lot less that sister can really bring to bear at the legal level people are allowed to do things that you yourself might think are foolish and the courts by and large are not about to step in and say no you can't do that if you are a competent adult who's decided to do something that somebody else thinks is silly so that's the first part of it if it's patently obvious that mother is incapacitated and there's maybe even been court orders or findings from uh, psychiatrists or something to say that she is, then the sister's remedies are probably first along the lines of trying to force brother to at least be accountable for how he's handling the money. And you can fairly easily get a court order that will require the brother to at least prepare a detailed set of accounts of what he's been doing with mother's money. That's usually the first step. The second step, and it may be part and parcel of the issue about trying to get the accounting, may be to try and get 
his power of attorney, because we're assuming that he's acting under mother's power of attorney, to get that power of attorney canceled or vacated and replace brother as the manager with somebody else. Now, if sister is living in the States and not physically here, it may be difficult, if not impossible, for her to become the manager. It may have to look to a corporate trustee, may have to look to some other family member, to some other professional who's prepared to take on the role, and they're no longer called a it would no longer be called an attorney if that's what happens. You'd be going to court to ask the court to cancel the power of attorney and to appoint a guardian. Now, you mentioned there were two ways to go on this. The preliminary way, or the first way you talked about, was to seek an accounting from the court. Now, is that a complex process, and what does it entail in terms of uh, the requirements put on the uh, attorney? Well, just to back up a little bit, the process of getting the court order that requires the attorney to account is comparatively simple. The sister would have a lawyer file a motion at the court with a simple affidavit setting out basically what's been going on, and it would be unlikely, I would think, for a court to say, no, we don't think there should be an accounting. So most times the order that says brother you must file your accounts in the court within 60 days is fairly easy to get from brother's perspective under his power of attorney if he gets that kind of court order delivered to him he has probably the more complicated position because he's got to get all of his accounting records together. He's got to get the bank statements and the investment statements and the copies of the bills that he's paid and all these things together. And they have to be put into a very specific form that the courts require that identifies every amount that's received and every amount that's paid out. It's not enough to just say personal expenses for August, X number of dollars. They have to be broken down. And he will have to get an accountant or somebody who's experienced with preparing accounts in the court forms to put all that together. In that case, can the brother ignore the order? He ignores it at his peril. It's a court order, and refusing to do anything about it actually puts a person in contempt of court, and if sister is minded to try to enforce that order, she can take him back into court, and there have been occasions where people who have really flagrantly violated or ignored this kind of court orders are actually sent to jail for contempt of court. Is there any way for the sister, in our example, to test the veracity uh, of that accounting? In other words, the underlying documents, I presume, have to be produced uh, as part of the accounting. They're not automatically produced as part of the accounts that are submitted. She would have to have her lawyer or her accountant identify the ones that look questionable and then they can say okay we want the 
proper documentation that supports this transaction or this payment. Okay. Now, if that's the case, you get brother essentially going through a rigorous exercise of, of, go, of doing the accounts, showing everything to the sister. The sister takes a look at it and, and, and sees to her horror, which she always suspected, that money's gone missing and it can't be accounted for. What then? Well, if brother can't account for the money, technically he owes it back to mother. And what can sister do about that? Well, that is part of the passing of accounts process. And if she makes that demand and it's, can, she can make the case before a judge that there is pretty good odds that the money is not accounted for and may well have gone into brother's hands, he owes the money and a judge will order that he pay it back. And it's not really sister's role to prove that brother took it. It's brother's role to prove that he didn't. Right. Let's now talk about the second order we talked about, which sounds a little more complex, which is the guardianship order. Uh, This is the order that you said would essentially revoke the power of attorney and replace it with a court-appointed guardian, or replace him, rather, with a court-appointed guardian. How does that happen? It it sounds to me like it's a pretty difficult process. It can be. And the first thing that sister has to be aware of if she is going that route is there are going to be three parties to this court action. Her, her brother, and her mother. And whenever you mount this sort of action, the the court rules require that the actual application to the court that requests that the power of attorney be revoked and that mother be found to be mentally incompetent or incapable and that a new guardian be appointed and that they are to do all these different things that they have to do, that has to be personally served on mother. So if sister already has a kind of tenuous relationship with her mother, and she gets this court or this court application put together in order to bring brother to heel and to replace him with somebody else. She has to recognize that a process server will walk up to mother's door, whether it's at brother's house or her own house or retirement home or wherever she is, and say, "Are you Mrs. So and So?" you are hereby served with a notice of application. And if mother's still able enough to at least be aware of what's going on and she sees that you've got sister as the applicant and herself as the respondent, unfortunately, the usual response is, my daughter's taking me to court. How dare she? And if there's already a difficult relationship, it never makes it better, which is very unfortunate because... And but something that families do have to recognize that if you want to worsen a rift that's already there, this is a very fast way to do it. Sounds like a, a difficult personal situation for everyone involved. Is there some kind of middle ground, some kind of mediation that's available to these kind of for these kind of issues and this kind of situation? Yes, I would say there's always a middle ground if people are prepared to actually reach out to each other and attempt to resolve things. Usually it would be 
in the context of allowing the power of attorney to be continued to exercise or to be exercised, but under some sort of circumstances that people agree how things are going to operate and who's going to be having access to records and who's going to be informed and so forth. All of that can and should be resolved in either a formal or an informal kind of mediation that the family could convene themselves or that they can have... uh, assisted through a mediator who would be able to act as sort of the the neutral party in the room. So, yes, if there's any realistic possibility that they can come back together and try to work things out, some form of either formal or informal mediation is vastly better than dragging things through the courts and certainly a lot more inexpensive. Well, I think that that's something that we should all think about, but I I, I, I heed your warning, and I think everyone who hears this podcast should hear your warning, heed your warning that took place at the beginning of it, which is avoid court as much as you possibly can. Certainly in these sorts of sensitive family situations, it, I'd say it's rare that it makes it a lot better. I get it, and of course everyone listening to this will want to know what to do when, unfortunately, they're the sister from Connecticut, and they need to deal with this problem. So how do they get a hold of you, Margaret, to ask these kind of questions and get your kind of uh, advice? Well, my email is emrintool at blaney.com. My direct phone is 416-593-2981. Thank you very much for this. Next on Blaney's Briefs, we'll hear from Paul Pimentel, an articling student with Blaney McMurtry, who will speak about Transparency Canada and issues of corruption in this country. This is Paul Pimentel. I'm a member of the Legal Committee of Transparency International Canada, and I'm also uh, an articling student here at Blaney McMurtry. Uh, Transparency International Canada is a nonprofit advocacy group uh, that promotes anti-corruption practices in Canada's governments, businesses, and society at large. Some examples of the work we do include training workshops and events. Uh, more recently, we made a submission to the uh, Charbonneau Commission, which is investigating corruption in Quebec's construction industry. Three of our members will be providing expert testimony before the commission in November. Transparency International obviously deals with uh, a lot of anti-corruption issues, and uh, I'm going to speak today a little bit about why uh, we in Canada should be concerned uh, about anti-corruption issues. And there are several reasons for this. One of those reasons is that enforcement of anti-bribery laws is on the rise, both in Canada and globally. And another reason is that while enforcement efforts have gone up, compliance by corporations and on companies in general appears to be stalling. So let's talk about enforcement. Earlier this year, a 67-year-old Ottawa-based executive was sentenced to three years in prison for bribing officials from Air India and an Indian cabinet minister. This is a fairly hefty sentence given the defendant's age and the fact that this was white-collar crime. It indicates how serious the Crown and the judiciary is taking the issue. The RCMP has since issued warrants for the arrest of three more executives from the same company, including its CEO. This means that the police are going to continue going after those who commit these sorts of crimes. There have also been millions of dollars of fines issued against companies found guilty of bribery. For example, 
Calgary's Griffiths Energy was fined over $10 million for bribing foreign officials in order to obtain oil and gas leases in Africa. There are also significant indirect costs. After SNC-Lavalin announced it was investigating corruption payments, its share price dropped by more than 20%. About $1.5 billion in shareholder value was wiped out almost instantly. SNC is now facing a $1.5 billion lawsuit for misrepresentations about its corporate governance practices. All this tells us that anti-corruption enforcement is on the rise, and corporations, their directors, and officers should be concerned about it. Ironically, while enforcement is on the rise, anti-corruption compliance efforts appear to be stalling. A global fraud survey by Ernst & Young found that a persistent minority of companies haven't even taken basic steps towards creating anti-corruption compliance programs. It found that less than half of the executives from companies surveyed had even attended anti-corruption training. This stall in compliance, combined with increased enforcement efforts, suggests that corporate leaders should focus on developing anti-corruption compliance programs.